Welcome to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches, featuring inspiring new devotionals and forums given each week on BYU campus. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. Thanks so much, Vice President Reese, for that kind introduction, and thank you all for coming this morning. It is a great pleasure and honor for me to be speaking to you today in this spectacular venue, never spoken uh, in a basketball arena before, um, uh, uh, here in gorgeous Provo um, at BYU, which honestly is one of my favorite educational institutions in the world. Uh, I think that the topic of this year's forum um, on becoming a beloved community could not be more urgently timely. And I really am honored to be a part of it. Uh, special thanks to Dr. John Rosenberg and Dr. Melissa Hockley for inviting me and organizing everything so perfectly. So by now, we all know that America is in the grip of a vicious political tribalism. You flip from Fox News to MSNBC, and it's like you're hearing about two totally different countries. Partisanship has become toxic, and it's increasingly difficult for people on different sides of the political aisle to talk civilly about issues like race, gender, climate change, and election outcomes. Even the pandemic, which a lot of people thought maybe like 9-11 would bring the country together, No, just the opposite happened. COVID was instantly politicized. For the first time in many generations, there is serious talk among serious people that maybe it's just time for America to split up into red America and blue America, which for me, the daughter of two immigrants who came to this country in the 1960s because they saw it as a beacon for the rest of the world would be tragic. So what I want to do for the next uh, 30 minutes or so is to try um, first to do my best to explain why America is so bitterly divided today. What are the root causes of this tribalism? And then I want to talk about what future leaders of America, people like you guys, um, can do going forward to try to overcome this tribalism. And I believe that the answer lies in remembering what it is that makes America so special and exceptional as a nation, different from any other country on the planet, Um, and re-embracing the precious civic values enshrined in our founding document, the U.S. Constitution. And then we'll open things up for questions. I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. So let me just start by saying that uh, human beings, like our fellow primates, are tribal animals. It's biological. We're hardwired that way. We can't help it. We need to belong to groups. And once we connect with a group, we tend to want to cling to it and defend it and see our group as better in every way. In a fascinating recent study, Children between the ages of four and eight, that's really young, were randomly assigned to either the red group or the blue group. Not what you'd think would be a really intense divide. Um, So they were assigned to either the red group or the blue group, and then giving corresponding t-shirts, either a red t-shirt or a blue t-shirt. These kids, these subjects, were then shown computer-edited images um, of a whole bunch of other children, half of whom were wearing red t-shirts and the other half wearing blue t-shirts. These young subjects between the ages of four and eight were then asked for their reactions to these children in the computer images. The results were stunning. Even though these kids knew absolutely nothing about the kids in the computer images, they consistently said they liked the kids wearing their color better, wanted to allocate more resources to them, and perhaps most disturbingly, exhibited systematic uh, unconscious bias, memory distortion. That is, they were told stories about all these kids, and 
these children tended to remember all of the positive things about the children wearing their color and all the negative things about the children on the other team. So human beings aren't just a little tribal. We are very tribal. And once we uh, belong to a group, our identities can become oddly bound up with it. The effect is like a drug. We will seek to benefit our group mates even when we personally gain nothing, and we will take pleasure when outgroup members fail or suffer a misfortune. Studies show that our brains actually light up with pleasure when we stick it to the other side. We will sacrifice and sometimes even kill and die for our groups. Now, having said that, tribalism is not necessarily a bad thing. Sports is a great example. I mean, we're, we're here in an arena, uh, and it can be fun. Um, family can be very tribal. I will be the first to admit that I am a huge family person and a very tribal person. The problem, though, is when tribalism takes over a political system. That's when things get dangerous. Because then you start seeing everything through your group's lens. And facts and statistics and arguments and policies, they don't matter. You just stick to your tribe no matter what and try to take down the other side. And that's what we're seeing in America today. That's why we can't get anything done. We can't even talk to each other. We're at the point where many Americans see people who voted for the other side, not just people that they want to argue with or debate, but as immoral, evil, and un-American, which is a really dangerous state of affairs if you feel that way about half the country. It's really a recipe for civil war. At the same time, we're seeing a fracturing and splintering within groups, within the left, within the right, with ever-dividing groups pitting themselves against each other. So the next question is why? Why is this happening now? What is different about this moment? And I want to highlight three factors that I think make this moment different from anything we've seen before in the history of the United States. The first factor is the massive demographic transformation that this country um, is undergoing. For 200 years, America was dominated economically, politically, and culturally by a white majority. Now, when one group is so overwhelmingly dominant, um, it can do lots of terrible things. It can oppress, it can enslave, persecute with impunity. But, Interestingly, an overwhelmingly dominant group like that can also afford to be more generous, to be more inclusive, like, for example, the WASP elites of the 1960s, who basically voluntarily opened up uh, the universities of this country to more Jews, blacks, Asians, and other minorities, in part because it just seemed like the right thing to do. Today, that's totally different. Why? Because today, for the first time in U.S. history, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status at the national level. Uh, the estimates differ a little bit. The Pew Foundation says it's going to happen in 2044. U.S. Census says 2050. There are debates about exactly what that's going to look like. But it's going to happen. It's already happening. Um, non-Hispanic whites are already no longer a majority in a number of states and major cities in this country. Why is that important? It's important because that as a result, in America today, every group feels threatened. It's not just the minorities anymore who feel threatened. Whites feel threatened. Over half of white Americans feel that they are now subject to more discrimination than minorities. And this is not just a Republican thing. Uh, according to the Pew Foundation, because of affirmative action, diversity policies, you know, competition for college spots, about 30% of Democrats believe that there is some or a lot of anti-white discrimination. Today, it's not just religious minorities like Jews or Muslims who feel threatened. Christians feel threatened. You see this in the political rhetoric of war on the Bible, war on Christmas. When Donald Trump became president, many women felt threatened. With the Me Too movement, men feel threatened. Straights and gays, Latinos and Asians, everyone feels threatened. 
And studies show that it's exactly when groups feel threatened, that's when they retreat into tribalism. That's when they close ranks, become more insular, more us versus them, and more defensive. And that is why we are seeing a new kind of really explicit identity politics today on both sides of the political spectrum. So on the right, we are now seeing openly xenophobic white nationalist movements proudly holding conferences in D.C. and being covered by the mainstream media in a way that would have been shocking just maybe eight years ago. A common theme is that the white race is in uh, danger of extinction, about to be drowned by a rising tide of non-white people who are demonized as criminals or spies or people who take jobs away from real Americans. On the left, it's just as bad. Today, there are openly anti-white movements. There's a growing number of best-selling books um, and training programs uh, right on the campus where I work in which whites are demonized and asked to feel guilty and bad about themselves just for being white. So the resent is more and more resentment and distrust all around. And I teach on probably the most progressive campus in the country, and I see this in such an extreme form. Um, There is so much more self-segregation, all the different ethnic groups, races, religions, everybody's separate, and a hardening of those lines, and more and more policing. Um, for 20 years of teaching, I used to, my favorite thing is I would see my conservative and liberal students debating, arguing. I would deliberately make provocative discussions and they would become friends. Um, that is absolutely not possible anymore. Today, if you are a progressive student, and forget about having a friend who is a Republican, let's say you just like something they tweeted or uh, something to stand up for them on some small point you are instantly shamed and ostracized, no longer part of the tribe. Um, Note that this is a huge change in the progressive movement. I know you just had Martin Luther King III here speaking beautifully, but if you think of the civil rights movement of the 60s and 70s, which I know most of you uh, were not born, or even the international human rights movement of the 1990s and 2000s, Those were progressive, but their vision and goals were framed in universalist terms, inclusive terms, and that is not true of progressives today. So that is the first factor that I think is causing all of the kind of bitter um, polarization that we see because of the massive demographic changes that we've been experiencing really over the last 50 years. No group in America today feels comfortably dominant. Every group, whites, blacks, Muslims, Christians, they all feel attacked, persecuted, and pitted against other groups for jobs, spoils, university spots, and most importantly, the right to define the nation's identity. The second factor fueling political tribalism is social media. Um, It used to be in the 50s and 60s and 70s that everyone listened to the same three news stations. Uh, Now, to be sure, the news was dominated by a very certain perspective. All three major news anchors when I was growing up were white men, um, and there were pretty much only white men in charge. So I am absolutely not saying that it was a good thing or perfect back then, but at least the goal of these news stations was to be as objective and measured as possible, and everyone heard the same facts. Republicans and Democrats have always disagreed, often bitterly. But in the past, they would talk to each other, argue with each other, and perfectly often marry with each other. Very common. That is very different today. Uh, Today, we pretty much get our news only from people we already agree with. If you're conservative, you watch Fox or Newsmax. If you're liberal, you watch CNN or MSNBC. And the anchors, whether Hannity or Rachel Maddow, they don't even pretend to be objective. It's just the opposite. To get ratings up, their incentive is to get people mad. And it's the same with social media. The more vicious and biting you are on Twitter, the more likes and retweets you get. You write something loving and moderate, no one's interested. 
As many have noted, social media is basically an outrage machine, which creates echo chambers and just pushes both sides farther and farther apart. So that's the second factor. The third factor, uh, finally, I think that we're seeing the rise of a new or at least newly intense divide in America between what you could loosely call America's coastal elites or cosmopolitan elites on the one hand and southern, working class, heartland, rural Americans on the other. Um, Coastal elites, which is kind of the people I'm surrounded by, um, are extremely insular. They think of themselves as very open-minded, but they're actually very, very insular. Um, They tend to share the same cosmopolitan, often secular viewpoints, progressive viewpoints. Um, And they even speak in their own kind of language, their own lingo, kind of a politically correct language. Um, And they do tend to view people who voted for President Trump as racist bigots. Meanwhile, on the other side, it's equal, it's the same. Many middle Americans view coastal elites as arrogant globalists who hate America and want to destroy its economy and freedoms. Each side, again, sees the other side as evil and un-American and not even worth talking to. So... Those are what I think are the root causes of why this moment feels so toxic and so bitter. Um, and it's a, it's a difficult moment. At a time when China is very powerful and unified and extending its influence around the world, we in America, by contrast, are deeply divided along class, racial, and political lines, constantly ripping into each other. So what do we do about this? What is the way forward? Obviously, uh, there are no simple solutions. I I began with talking about how tribalism is hardwired biologically into us. But I think that part of the answer lies in remembering what it is that makes America special. What it is that makes us different from almost every other country in the world, even the democratic countries of Western Europe. So alone among the major powers, America is what I call a supergroup. Let me explain what I mean by this concept. It's really easy. To be a supergroup, you have to satisfy two simple conditions. The first is you must have a very strong overarching national identity, like American, you know, or China. Um, you know, capable of inspiring loyalty and patriotism. So that's the first condition. But to be a supergroup, you have to satisfy a second condition, and that is that you have to allow smaller individual subgroup identities, ethnic, religious, linguistic, racial, to also thrive. And at our best, that's America. America is a country where you can be Irish-American, Syrian-American, Japanese-American, Mormon-American, Jewish-American, Cuban-American, and intensely patriotic at the same time. And that may sound like old hat to you guys, but we forget just how rare that is. Almost no other country in the world is a supergroup, believe it or not. China, for example, is not. China is very powerful, But it's not a supergroup because it satisfies the first condition. It's got a really strong overarching national identity. But that identity is rooted in the ethnicity, in an ethnic Han identity. So China doesn't satisfy the second condition. Smaller subgroup identities like your Uyghurs or the Tibetans or all kinds of minorities, obviously their identities are not allowed to flourish. Um, Now, believe it or not, even a Western democracy like France, which is so much like the United States in so many ways, it is also not a supergroup for the same reason as China. France has a very strong collective identity, but because of their almost um, forced assimilation policies, they call it laicite, ethnic and religious minorities in France must thoroughly assimilate, at least in public. I'm sure you've heard about the ban on wearing religious symbols, the headscarf ban, the burkini ban. As the former French president, Nicolas Sarkozy himself put it, if you want to become French, then you have to speak French, you live like the French. And many believed 
that such attempts at forced assimilation have backfired with France's Muslims and immigrants from North Africa contributing to social unrest and radicalization. By contrast, the United States is a supergroup. And the good news here, and I also often think this is a false dichotomy I'm presented with, the good news is that we don't have to choose between having a really strong group transcending collective identity and multiculturalism. We can have both. So I give a lot of talks around the country, at least before uh, COVID, and I'm always asked the same question. Is there another country that could serve as a model for the United States to learn from, to, to help us overcome our tribal divisions? And I always respond, sir, no, there is no other country that's a better model. We are the best model. We are actually better situated than any other country in the world because of the fact that our national identity is not rooted in blood, but rather in the principles of the U.S. Constitution. This makes us different from most other countries in the world, including the countries of Europe that started off as, and in many ways still are, ethnic nations. The fact that our constitution, uh, that as a constitutional matter, our national identity is ethnically and religiously neutral makes the United States, as a country, uniquely equipped to overcome the challenges of political tribalism. Having said that, we are at a perilous moment. America's status today as a supergroup is under tremendous strain because of the three factors I mentioned. This massive demographic transformation, social media, and the growing divide between urban and coastal elites and the rest of the country. So let me now offer three kind of concrete suggestions for how we can get back on the right track, or at least move in the right direction. First, I think we all need to be much more protective of America's special national identity. And this is a lesson that both the left and the right need to take to heart, although in completely different ways. On the left, I think progressives need to be aware of the danger in their scorched earth approach to America, its history, and its ideals. It is common among progressives now, especially younger ones, I hear it all the time at Yale, to hear America described as a land of oppression. Um, it's a country founded on genocide. Many, many prominent prize-winning writers on the left routinely depict America as a country that is built on and structurally committed to white supremacy. But as I always tell my students, there is a huge world of difference between saying on the one hand that America has repeatedly and shamefully failed to live up to its own ideas and we must do better and try harder there's a huge difference between saying that and saying that the principles supposedly uniting us are just bogus lies and smoke screens to disguise oppression. Because if America really is nothing more than a land of oppression, founded on nothing more than genocide and white supremacy, it's hard to see why America is worth fighting for. Unfortunately, there are equal dangers coming from the right. America cannot remain a supergroup if we start defining our national identity, for example, through our immigration policy, in terms of whiteness, or Anglo-Protestant culture, or Christianity, or any other term that is not inclusive of all colors and creeds. To do so would be in a movement, uh, would be a movement in the direction of ethno-nationalism, away from what it is that makes us special as a nation whose identity is rooted in principle and ideas, not blood. So that's my first suggestion. I think we all need to elevate ourselves and be much, much more thoughtful about what it means to have a strong American identity, true to our history. Second suggestion, 
I think we need to promote and experiment with concrete, practical initiatives designed to help Americans see each other as fellow Americans. Specifically, I think we really need to do some work to bridge the deep chasm between the coasts and the heartland that contributes um, so much to the mutual ignorance, disdain, and stereotyping that is everywhere. I uh, Specifically, I think that we should think seriously about having some kind of national service program for young people. Um, maybe right after high school, where young Americans from one part of the country, say New York City or Los Angeles or Miami, are encouraged or maybe required to spend a year in another part, an unfamiliar part of America, interacting with one pe- uh, young people whom they would normally never talk to, um, engaging in some sort of common project. And on this point, I am so proud and happy to be here today because I think that the rest of America can take a page from the missionary program of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I, I understand, of course, that the Mormon mission is first and foremost an experience of religious consecration and sacred service. But at the same time, it's also a wonderful example and a successful example of an experience of civic engagement in which Mormons from one country, say the United States, live and interact with people from completely different ethnic, cultural, and linguistic backgrounds in a way that opens one's eyes and broadens one's perspective. I have been told that approximately 75% of BYU students speak a second language, and that is so astounding um, and so impressive. And I've also been told that many of you have already served out of the country on two-year ecclesiastical missions. Um, And I think that is so impressive and inspiring and something I think that the rest of the country can and should learn from. My third and final suggestion has to do with education and civics. America's changing. There's no going back. We are in a period of renegotiating and rediscovering our collective identity. We are struggling to arrive at a national identity that is capacious enough to resonate with and hold together as one people, Americans of all sorts, old and young Immigrants and native-born, urban and rural, descendants of slaves, as well as descendants of slave owners. So to that end, I think we need to think very hard about how we can teach our children U.S. history in a way that tells the truth while still conveying the idea of America as a special nation. It is really important that we no longer teach our children a whitewashed version of American history. But I think it's also important not to overcorrect, which is, I worry what is, we are now doing. Um, I recently gave a talk in New York City, and a history teacher at a super fancy elite private high school told me, really in despair, that most of his incredibly smart students now express total disdain for the founding fathers. They're just dead white male slave owners. At the University of Virginia, in 2016, the president of the university quoted Thomas Jefferson, that's the school's founder, in an email to students. In response, 469 students and faculty signed an open letter declaring that they were deeply offended at the use of Thomas Jefferson as a moral compass. I think that is a terrible problem. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were slave owners, but they were also political visionaries who helped give birth to what became the most inclusive form of governance in world history. To conclude, America is an aspirational nation. 
Our ideals have always far exceeded reality. The American dream is a promise of freedom and hope, but it is also a call on all of us to make true the myths that we tell ourselves about what America has always been. The poet Langston Hughes captured this powerfully in his 1935 poem, which is called Let America Be America Again. And this is how I'd like to end because um, I also think it fits perfectly with the theme of becoming a beloved community again. So I will just read a a small snippet of this poem and then um, conclude. So it's a really creative poem and it's got two voices that go back and forth. The first voice is very hopeful. So it begins, let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love. But then a second voice answers. It says, it never was America to me. And then the first hopeful voice replies, say, who are you that mumbles in the dark? And the second voice answers, I am the poor white, fooled and pushed apart. I am the black man bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. But far from concluding with defeat, Langston Hughes offers a prayer and an affirmation and ends this way. Oh, let America be America again, the land that never has been yet and yet must be the land where every man is free. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be. Thank you so much. You've been a great audience and I'm really looking forward to taking questions. Hi, it's so nice to meet you. I'm Rachel Marshall. I'm a statistics major about to graduate and I've recently started work at a management consulting firm focused on company culture and creating good ones, right? So I wanna know um, from your experience what Though cultures tend to form naturally, what aspects of culture can we manually influence to be best, most productive, and fruitful? Wow, such an important and huge question. If we could could solve that one. So this is not going to be a perfect answer, but um, at the end of Political Tribes, I actually offer some hopeful, optimistic studies, you know, uh, because I talked about some of the pretty worrisome studies about how tribal we are just as, as, as you know, creatures. Um, but there are tons of studies that show that if you can get two people, you know, w- whether within a corporation or within a school or country, to actually interact and engage with each other on a one-and-one basis as individuals first, before you know what their political affiliations are, amazing progress can be made. So if you um, can take two people, one person who voted for Trump and another never-Trumper, and you put them together and they can only talk about you, you, you ask about different aspects of culture. Actually, there's a lot. Food, pizza, football, dogs, pets, children, education, movies. People can find common ground. And studies show that if they meet as individuals and they found all these other common areas, then you introduce politics. It's not like they don't you know, immediately bristle, but it's so much better. So I think that's kind of the goal. Um, and that's all I'll say. A really good example of this, and this is like your grant. I wasn't even, I don't even remember this very well, but the Vietnam War, a lot of terrible things happened there, but one really positive thing that happened in the Vietnam War was because of the mandatory draft. Americans of all backgrounds, black, white, people, you know, Mexican-Americans, Scandinavian-Americans, you know, German-Americans, rich, poor, they were all thrown together. And 
it's so touching to read their accounts. They're like, when you're in a ditch, so afraid that you're not going to make it alive the next day, you turn to the person next to you, you don't care what the color of their skin is or what kind of accent they had. And there was a lot of common ground that was found then. So I think that is like a, just the beginning of an answer. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Juliet Ball. I'm from Oregon and I'm studying microbiology and I'll be applying to law schools next year. Yay, come to um, Yale. Make it better. <laughs> I, uh, my question is, how has your background in the law and immigrant heritage influenced your ability to dissipate this tribal, you know, this tribalism in your personal dealings? Because I'm sure that you often get mischaracterized about your political beliefs, you know, Based on your open-mindedness, and so, uh, you know, how do you how do you do this in on, in your personal life, on your in your personal dealings? Thank you for that question. So, um, I'll be really honest. It's I've loved teaching for 25 years. I've won many teaching awards. I love mentoring. It has been really, really hard in the last five years for just the reasons you identify. I'm an independent. I never thought of myself as a political person. Um, But, you know, in these times, if you just say one thing, you know, in my case, I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal before any accusations came out, praising then-Judge Kavanaugh's uh, mentorship. And I was asked to retract and take it back, and I just didn't. I'm not saying that's right or wrong, but I just... As a personal matter, I don't turn on my friends. Um, And it's been very, very difficult because a lot of people are angry at me. I teach at a very progressive school. But I love your question because being an immigrant, um, I have always been an outsider, you know. And that might sound whiny, but it's not. I, I think it's a great source of strength. And I think kind of this population here might understand that a little bit. Being a little peculiar, a little bit different, but having a really solid family, a solid base, something I believed in, you know, the way my parents raised me. So that has helped me so much. You know, like I, it's, I'm not shell-shocked. I'm like, oh, so I'm dealing with a lot of hate and sort of things that I might feel were unfair accusations, but I thought, you know, when I was four, this happened to me, when I was eight, when I was whatever, you know, I was the only Asian kid in West Lafayette, Indiana, um, and so I think being an outsider helps. And then on the law point, I can't believe this is such a no-brainer. You know, again, I teach at a law school, I can't understand this, like, the the fact that we're founded on the U.S., the principles of the U.S. Constitution is so obvious to me. I mean, that is such a that's such great news, <laughs> you know, that is so hopeful. Um, so that's my simple answer there, that I'm not a con law uh, professor, um, but to me I know enough about like our rather unique foundational origins um, to, to actually see that as a huge advantage for the country, and so that gives me hope. Thank you. Great. Hi, my name is Wistie, I'm an English major here. Um, and in your opinion, uh, was there and what was the event or thing that uh, led to the drastic and dramatic division or rather collapse of unity um, that you speak about? Wow. Um, great question. You know, I sort of, this is, may not be a popular position, but I think that a lot of things were already building up you know, so, you know, a lot of people want to say, oh, it's, it's all Donald Trump. But I think he was tapping into a lot of deep social resentments and dynamics that have been around, you know, for, been, been building and growing. So if I were to answer your question, I don't think it was one thing. I think it's the three factors I mentioned, the fact that you know, there's been so much immigration and we could have a big debate about, I'm, I'm very pro-immigration because I'm an immigrant's daughter, but I still think we need restrictions and I think we need to, assimil- I think we need to monitor that. It's not just open borders um, in order to be a supergroup, to have this collective sense of being an American. Um, so I think there's the demographic changes. I think something I didn't mention today is the drastic decline in upward mobility. Um, that's a huge problem because part of what made this country work is that you could be from the middle of the country, farmer's kid or parents not educated, and work hard, go to a community college, and make it to New York or L.A. and make it. 
These days, housing is so expensive on the coasts. You have to private schools, tutors. I mean, it's really hard to do that, and that's partly what makes it so rigid. The difference between the two kind of white populations I was talking about. Um, so I, I would say decline in upward mobility. A lot of um, demographic, very rapid demographic transformation with not a lot of sensitivity to how to manage that. And as I said, social media, just definitely. And then I think. Uh, Donald Trump was just a master at, at, at you know, I, there's a chapter in my book where I actually notice all, all the commonalities between Donald Trump, and this might surprise you, Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, even though they're, of course, on opposite ends of the political spectrum. One's a socialist, there's the opposite. Very similar kind of techniques. Um, he had a reality TV show. He was a man of the people, tapped into a lot of social resentments. So that's a partial answer, too. Thank you. Thanks. My name is Madeline Miles. I am a uh, sociocultural anthropology major here at BYU uh, in hopes to be an immigration lawyer. And um, I also recently returned serving a mission in Chile. And I noticed a lot of um, uh, a lot of themes of political tribalism there as well, political and um, social racial tribalism. And um, as a missionary, we are very impartial and unbiased, and we don't talk about politics. And so um, I noticed that religion was a big theme of unity with the people that we taught. And so my question um, for you is, um, how do you think um, like religious tolerance or um, religion in the United States would impact unity or disunity? if that makes sense. Yes. Um, So, you know, this is such a huge topic. I have a billion things to say about it. Um, I I think one of the things that worries me a lot when I talk about coastal elites or urban elites or cosmopolitan elites is almost a disdain for religion. Um, And I just don't get it. It's so wrong-headed towards me, and it's so, in a way, un-American for just the reason I was saying. We're a supergroup. We we started with religious tolerance. We were, you know, the establishment cause, like, that's what made us different. Um, So I, this is another kind of way to look at it. When I look at a church like the Mormon church, you know, in some ways you are a little bit of a supergroup yourself, right? Because you have a very unifying creed, things that, you, you know, tie you together and make you a really strong, I think, an inspiring, I don't know why I should use people, but a group, you know. Um, but you could just see this is related to the missions, right? I mean, you have people of all different races and backgrounds and different ethnicities. Language is so important to you. So I kind of like that model, and I think that might be what you're getting at. Um, Of course, we also know that religion in human history has been a source of tremendous bloodshed, and, and, uh, you you know, when you can see why with the Enlightenment, a lot of people moved away for that. So I would just say that I'd like to think about this more. I mean, to me, um, I... I, I happen to be somebody that's very spiritual. I myself was raised Catholic, and, it, and it, religion was always a source of enormous strength and inspiration. You know, when I'm so depressed and lonely, that's kind of what I look to. Um, and I know there's been a lot of literature right now on something I didn't talk about today, how, how that's partly why our young people are so adrift, who are not religious. They just have, you know, it's, it's kind of me, me, me. The focus is... Let's do a lot of men. All I, I favor these things: mental health training, this and this. But there's nothing deeper to give them nourishment. So I think you're really onto something. But you know, it's of course you know a huge subject. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, my name is Jacob, and I'm a computer science major. Um, my question is super similar to the last question, Great. so I apologize for that. But what is the role that religion plays um, in, like? making of laws and in the political, in the political sphere. Yes. Now here, you know, again, I'm just showing my cards here as a lawyer. Like I, and I could have a, you know, sort of, you know, reasonable disagreement with people who might think that there should be a role of religion. For me, um, the way I see America is that this is a place where, um, 
religion should not come into how you decide constitutional issues. Rather, our constitution should make it just anybody be able to worship their religions. That religious freedom is extremely important and part of our foundation too. But the way I see it, it shouldn't be I'm making this law from a religious point of view. It should be our overall framework is one that should celebrate and accommodate and nourish all kinds of religions. Um, and it's a really good question you're asking because you know there are a lot of these constitutional law issues that make me, first of all, happy that I teach boring classes like contracts and, not, and international business transactions rather than constitutional law that are so tricky where even really good, smart, thoughtful people, it's, it's a close call, right? Like, because you're, you're weighing, let's say, free speech against, you know, religious liberties. How does that come out? And it's really tricky on the campus where I am. I mean, it's, it's practically come to blows, you know. Um, so I don't pretend to have any really good answers, but it's a really good question. Thank you. Hi, Professor Chua. My name's Tom Fairholm. I study music composition and oh. Russian. Wonderful. And I want to thank you for your very inspiring and patriotic remarks today. Thank you. Um, like many Americans, I was uh, dismayed at the January 6th attack on our democracy. And I've seen polls in the past year that suggest that somewhere between 70 and 80 percent of re Republicans believe that the 2020 election was stolen. So I'm wondering, how can I oppose what I view as an urgent threat to American democracy without villainizing or alienating my Republican friends? Um, such an important question. Um, so first, just to equalize things, um, it's on both sides, right? Um, just by virtue of where I teach, most of my colleagues and friends are on the other side. They're Democrats. I will tell you, I don't know if it's 60%, 70%, 80%, some huge percentage of progressives in my circle believed that Donald Trump was not legitimately elected. Um, that it was either the Russians or, or something, you know. Um, and I was always ahead of the curve on this because I got in trouble, uh, I was provocative 10 years ago when I said this about Hugo Chavez. You know, I think Americans want to believe that democracy, it, it has to work, it has to only bring in good people, right? And I got myself in hot water because in 2003 I wrote in an op-ed in the New York Times, Hugo Chavez was democratically elected. He tapped into a lot of social resentments and he, 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 he did terrible things after he was elected, drove the country into the ground, disbanded Congress, but he was a demagogue who did get elected. And I got to tell you, it was so hard. I got so much hate just for saying that he was democratically elected. Because if you really believe that somebody horrible has just been elected, you want to say no. It, it was corruption. It was illegitimate. It was a cheating. So that's why your question is so good. Um, it's just a human instinct, you know. So as to how, that, that's a trickier thing. Um, you know, sometimes it sounds like a cliche, but I have tried. I have a, one student here. It's not easy, and it's gotten a lot harder, but as a professor, so in a really small microcosm, I have tried to be like a good leader, like kind of like set ground rules, which is say, okay, we are going to disagree, but the, if you're going to take this class, I actually have a big banner on my syllabus, you, the presumption, if you hear something that offends you, you must, you can't presume that that person is racist or a bigot or something. You just, you have a right to state what it is that offended you about that statement, and then we'll have a back and forth. And I don't want to romanticize it. It is so much harder today than it used to be like five, ten years ago. We used to, you know, we used to have these blowout, fun, fiery discussions. Now I'm tense. But I do think that I've been pretty successful. That is, I think I've been successful at um, setting rules and saying, look, let's have a civil discourse. So on your point, you could say, look, I fine, my view of January 6th is XYZ. I'm horrified or whatever, but let me hear why you are not horrified, you know, or, or you know, and sometimes you're just going to get some people that are crazy, you know, that you'll never agree with, but other times you'll start to hear things like, you know what, I totally disagreed with it, but I think it's being overblown. Or, you know what, I totally disagree with it, but how about this and this, you know? And so I think there can be conversations. They're not going to be easy, but, um, so, but great question. 
Hi, my name is Luke Hansen, and I am a chemical engineering major here at BYU. Um, not to bury the lead, I'm somebody who's very much on the right, yep. and I know you mentioned problems on both sides of the aisle. Um, you seem to be pretty specific about where institutionally some of these bad ideas are coming from the left. I'm wondering if you could speak more specifically to where they are coming from on the right. Right. Um, yeah, so maybe I'll start with just human nature. Like about five years ago, when at Yale Law School, there was all this like enforced diversity training and, and just things that they were trying to do the right thing. They were trying to correct. But a lot of these classes and training took what I called kind of like an anti-white side, which is just admit it, like everything you did was terrible. You've only done bad things, you know, white people. And even back then, I said, forget what's right or wrong. Just as a matter of psychology, this is a bad idea. Because nobody wants to hear that, right? Maybe you will have some extreme people on the left who want to slavishly be, oh, I'm so horrible. But for the bulk of people at a certain point, they're going to be like, wait a minute, were we that bad? I mean, we made some mistakes, but I mean, we also wrote the Constitution and we did X, Y, and Z. And I think what happens is that, so I don't like finger pointing, right? Because like it's a chicken egg, who started it, right? But you could see that at that moment, some, I don't know if it's institutional, but some politicians or leaders or charismatic figures are going to say, you know what, white people, you're not that bad. You're just not that bad. Here are all the amazing things that we did. And that makes sense to me that that's going to resonate, right? Like, which message do you want to hear? You're horrible, go bury yourself, you know? Or your people did a lot of good things. So, so I can actually understand where a lot of this comes from because it comes from this natural desire for all of us to feel self-esteem and pride, you know? So, so in, in terms of finger pointing, you know, or, or like where did it come from? I don't exactly know. To me, I, I like to take the more empathetic look, which is like, I, when I see things escalating on the left, on the right, and it's getting worse and worse, weirdly, maybe because of the answer to the second question, because I'm an outsider, I like to step outside. It's like, I kind of understand why this nightmare is happening, you know? And I don't think it's both sides of ism or equating, whatever. Um, so I know that's not a satisfactory answer, but I, I think a lot of it taps into feeling threatened and feeling persecuted and then just the human instinct of not wanting to just believe you're horrible, you know, like, and so that's, you know, maybe going forward, there can be a leader, whether on the right or on the left, that is just rises above other people. I know the Mormon church has had such figures, right? A lot of this sometimes turns on a very strong and inspiring figure, um, you know, so, so that, that would be great if we could get one of those at the national level. Thank yeah. you. Hello, my name is Aaron. I'm an English major. Um, and political tr tribalism is definitely something that I'm sure we've all noticed and seen more and more um, in political spheres. But just as being someone who's been trying to be more politically active, something that I've noticed a lot um, is that a big source of politically fueled hatred and division more and more seems to come from the framing of a given political issue as a personal attack on yes. a group of people, right? So obviously, like, um, the left sees abortion as an attack on women and women's bodies in a very literal sense, and the right sees it as an attack on the unborn, right? Um, just last week here in Utah, a bill was passed that legislated uh, underage transgender athletes, right? And in the big political debate leading up to that bill, both sides framed it very heavily as a very real attack on children. Um, so people that I interact with a lot in my political cir circles seem to sort of have this attitude of like, why should I even try to be civil and try to meet these people in the middle when they're committing real legislative violence against me? Um, and it, so my question for you is, if that is the case, and that is, because I mean, the reality is, of course, that legislation affects real people. Um, if that is the case, then why should we even try and work towards reaching a moderate point? Um, and if that is not the case, and that legislation is not as violent as that, then how do we overcome this, this attitude, I guess, of viewing issues as personal attacks? For me personally, I, I honestly, it's harder and harder to me to not view it as an attack yeah. on myself or as or certain groups of people that I care about or... Yeah. yeah. Oh, I mean, first of all, I don't know if I have much to add. That was so eloquent and I agree with so much of what you said. Uh, I 
watch with dismay this new vocabulary of everything is a violence to me, you know, um, and I understand it. Again, I understand where it's coming from, but it certainly makes it very, very difficult to have any kind of conversation. Uh, parallel with that is the immediate um, things that can't, like, that you're, that you're Nazi, you know. So, so, again, the previous question about January 6th, I think it's possible to condemn something with all your heart and be so horrified and terrified of it and not necessarily to say that this is exactly the same as the Holocaust, you know, or, or something like, and so there's a lot of like really fast sliding to, that's a racist, that's a xenophobe, it's a bigot. So I, I really like what you have said and I understand your struggle. Maybe this, it, it, I'm just going to pile on and reiterate your worry because um, I did Barry Weiss's podcast um, and she raised this really smart point. She said, she was hearing some people, I don't know if it was like, I don't know which side it was on the January 6th, either pro January 6th or against, but even though she violently disagreed with that view, she said, oh God, you know, Amy, I understand why you want to be on one or the other side of the tribe, right? Why you want to be, it's so, you have friends, you're with your circle, being an echo chamber is comfortable. You know, so she is a kind of, a little bit like me, she's independent, she's, I think she's a progressive, but she's taken a lot of views that are viewed as right wing, because she's a kind of free speech or whatever. But then when she says something that the right doesn't like, then they're like, you traitor, how could you do this? So my point being that it's actually a really hard time to be a moderate or independent right now. I view myself as an independent, and that used to be what was great about America. That's why my parents wanted to come here. This is a country of independent-minded people, individualists, people who think for themselves, and it's too bad that it's gotten so hard to be kind of quirky. This is my view here. I have different views. I'm thinking it through, and I can change my views. I can have a one view. Maybe I'm wrong. I'll listen. That is all so hard now. So I, I know I didn't answer your question, but I'm more just agreeing with you. It's a very difficult time because of the rhetoric that is used to, and, and for me too, sometimes even as a professor, I'm like, you know, let me just not bother to go there, right? Why well, have an explosion? I try not to do that because I want to be courageous, but I'm like, I can't afford another explosion right now. And, and that's, I think that's a shame. So great question. I'm sort of on your page. All right. Thank you. I'm Gabrielle Wilson. I'm a linguistics major. As relevant background, I am a dual citizen of U.S. and Mexico. So this, so this question stems from that. How can we create a narrative in which there is a conflict, you know, U.S. versus X or whatever, or whatever faction? and make it both transparent, yet uplifting. That stems from, uh, I've actually seen uh, both sides of the argument in the American-Mexican War. Wow. It's such an important question, because it's like we're talking about the pilgrims and slavery and the way Thanksgiving is viewed. And it's, a, it, it's, it's related to my question about how do we teach history in a way that doesn't whitewash it, it tells the truth, but still teaches us that it's a special, uh, that we're a special nation. You know, you're, that's such a good question. I don't know if I can do any better than you. Um, I, I think it's important to try as hard as we can to know that, to kind of know what one's own biases and politics are, you know. So you have this almost like an advantage because you know the Mexican side too. Right? So when you hear it, you can kind of see both sides. This reminds me of Vietnam. You know, when I, I did a chapter on Vietnam, and it was kind of startling for me to think, oh, they refer to it as something like the American War or something like that, you know, um, or to think about the civil, civil war from the point of view of the South. It's very, very, very tricky. Um, I don't know. I, I, I need to think about that. It's a great question. I, I, I think it comes down in a way to trying to stay to the facts, state facts, like who attacked, how many people were killed, do this, but without like finger pointing so much, um, you know, many people who are fighting a war have no choice. Many soldiers who are fighting a war have no choice. You know, they, they, they're fighting for their side. Um, but I, I thank you for your question. I, I'm going to think about it more, but uh, it's, uh, I don't have a simple solution. Thank you. Thanks. 
Hello, Professor Chua. I am Kimball Jardine. I am studying computer science. Um, I don't know, I remember from like 11 years ago when we were like seated around the kitchen table and the Wall Street Journal had a book review of oh my God. the Tiger Mother. Yeah. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. And so do I. <laughs> it's a firestorm, yeah. Um, but you were talking about how supergroups there, they have two key features, that they're very strong national identities, but then they are also able to have strong sub-identities. Yes. And you mentioned how many countries only fulfill the first, like China and France. And given the fact that tribalism and how it, and how it just creates fractious yeah. divisions seems to lean towards the second, where it's sub-identities yes. only. My question is, would you have notable examples of where it's not a strong national identity, but only a strong subgroup identity? Yes, I love this question, because um, my original field, by the way, um, wasn't the United States. I've studied developing countries. So first of all, I would say that almost all of the post-colonial developing countries are um, Benedict Anderson has written about this. They're, they're very weak, like countries like Syria or Afghanistan or Iraq. They, that's exactly the problem, right? That that overarching national identity in many cases was, was a colonial fiction created. Burma, or now called Myanmar, is another example. There are so many different tribes and they just kind of, the co colonizers literally just like, let's, let's cut it this shape. And there are even stories of horse trading, like, okay, you take that mountain, I'll take this. And it makes no sense. Um, so those are examples of countries that exist today that I think are not supergroups because they have only the subgroup identities and nothing tied them together. You might be interested in this. I provocatively say in political tribes that the UK is this example. And this might surprise you, um, the United Kingdom, they're like, what? Sounds like the United States. If you think about it, the UK, first of all, is made up of England, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, and those subgroup identities are very strong. That's fact one. Two, they have a lot of multiculturalism now in London where they don't want to stress this overarching British identity. You know why? Because imperialism is so out. Right? Nobody can defend, it's like this is not the moment to be defending empire, right? So since the British history is so rooted in that empire story and no one can talk about it, um, there's an interesting question of what ties that country together. Um, and it's, it's pretty interesting. I've actually talked to British people. Some people say the royal family, <laughs> Kate Middleton, you know, or the British Navy or something like that. But, I, but it's a great question. I'm glad that you raised it because I, I know I gave examples only of countries that are not a supergroup for the other reason. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. My name is Robert, and I study economics here at BYU. I am very invested in the success of the National Service Association that you described today, and I just I recognize that there's a lot of challenges associated with a, an organization like that, like the missionary department that you described in our church. And the only thing that really keeps it together is a unified purpose and cause, and yes. in our case, inviting others to come into Christ. My question for you today is, who in America would be best positioned as the founding fathers of an organization like the one that you described today? Wow, great question. So on a positive note, when I started toying around with this idea about three years ago, I found that, that a lot of other people were too. You know, a lot of vets, this is interesting, a lot of people who served in the military had this idea. Maybe for the reason I explained, that that's a place that in their experience, oh my God, when your life is on the line. Um, I, I think it's an especially good question, and I'll say something that would be probably provocative for the left, but because we do have a lot of Teach for America programs, and, and what I would want to avoid in this kind of program is a kind of condescending approach, where people from, the, from New York City go and teach these benighted people in the middle of the country to X, Y, and Z, you know, because that would just replicate it. So... I, I started thinking almost about incentive structures. Like, you know, right now, among a lot of wealthy families, um, there's a gap year after high school. And I understand in the church it's different for you because it's, you have the missionary component. But a lot of friends of my kids, 
they, after high school, they, they basically stick with their same elite friends and they go to like Guatemala or Australia and they kind of, they're in a foreign country, but it's not a purpose that is meaningful as it is for the LDS church. It's just like hanging out with their friends, except for in Australia, you know? Um, and so I thought maybe there could be an incentive, like you get some scholarship or debt reduction in college. If there, it could, I think it does have to come from some bipartisan higher up uh, entity in order to incentivize it. But um, so I, I went around and around and around, but it's a very good question. Awesome, okay. thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. There were great questions. Thank you, Steve. You've been listening to the Recent Speeches podcast presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts, including classic speeches taken from our vast audio library, as well as other BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me, the prophet Joseph Smith, and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.